Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Europe. Today is Sunday, July 5th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We've um, had a long hiatus from this program because of our travels throughout the month of June. I apologize for that, but having such travels, it's just impossible to keep a three-program-a-week schedule, and the Sunday afternoon program just has to be put on hold while we're on the road. I can't help that. Today I have with me, once again, Stan Longshanks of FastShopWeldonChong.com and Daily Stormer, and, and several other websites, Aryan Israel, I believe, being another one. And we're going to talk about Judea, Judah, and Jew. And I hope that this program is um, used in, in the future to provide some background into the nature of Judea to people who might come across Christian identity and who aren't familiar enough with the politics and history of Judea in the intertestamental period. If we understand those things, we can understand why it is that Jesus is not a Jew, as we know the Jews to be today. Hello, Sven. Hi, Bill. Hi, listeners. Praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. I, um, I'm going to give some historical background, which is going to take quite a few minutes. If you have anything to say, feel free to say it now, or, or um, perhaps you'll want to give input in, in, in the interim moments as I give this presentation. I think that it's necessary to lay something of a foundation historically so that we can begin to get a grip on this topic. Oh, definitely. It's, it's an important topic, I think. Um, people just seem to assume that the, the whole area was just full of Jews and that the Jews were the same then as um, the people that are called Jews today. Uh, and that's obviously not so for um, quite a number of different reasons, really, which uh, I think you're going to go into. And it's, it's an interesting history as well, I think. And um, just when we look at people like Herod, who was the, who was the king at the time, and um, some of the things that happened to him and what he did, and the fact that these... These Jews today, they call him Herod the Great. You know, they, they think he was a fantastic person. But I think we're going to find out that um, the Judahites back then, they certainly didn't think he was a very fantastic person. But um, I think we're going to get into that as we as we go further into the history build. So I'll, I'll let you ca carry on with your introduction. And um, uh, if I feel I have anything to add, then I'll, I shall um, try and notify you. If not, I shall just wait till the end of the introduction. Well, in order to understand this, the, the true nature of, of the um, problem, well, we could go back much further. We could go all the way back to the time of um, David in perhaps 950 B.C. But we have to begin at least with the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and 586 B.C. And when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the ancient kingdom of Judah, 
The Edomites were among their allies. Evidence for this is found in the Hebrew scriptures themselves. For instance, in 1 Esdras chapter 4, where, among other things that Ezra the scribe had recorded, we read the words of Zerubbabel, who about 70 years after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, had said in a prayer, Thou hast also vowed to build up the temple which the Edomites burned when Judea was made desolate by the Chaldees, who were the people of Babylon. This is verified in the non-apocryphal parts of Scripture in Psalm 137, which was a psalm written by Asaph during the Babylonian captivity. In verse 7, where it says, in another prayer, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. Upon the um, destruction of ancient Israel and Judah, the Edomites, along with many of the Arab tribes, had for a long time coexisted in what we now know as southern Jordan. And in the 6th century BC and thereafter, after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the Israelites, in large numbers, the Edomites migrated northward into the vacuum that was created in the lands of ancient Judah and Israel. This is explained by Ezekiel in his 35th chapter where it says, in part, and, and this is a prophecy of God against the Edomites, thus will I make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off from it him that passes out and him that returns. And I will fill his mountains with slain men. In thy hills and in thy valleys and in all thy rivers shall they fall that are slain with the sword. And I will make thee perpetual desolations, and thy city shall not return, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Because thou hast said, and in order to understand who was meant by thou, and who was meant by Mount Seir, it must be understood that Seir was a mountain in ancient Edomia. It was the place where Esau, the progenitor of the Edomites, had first dwelt. The term Seir, or Mount Seir, was later used prophetically of the Edomites. Because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries, meaning Israel and Judah, shall be mine, and we will possess it, whereas the Lord was there. As I live, saith the Lord God, I will even do according to thine anger, and according to thine envy, which thou hast used out of thy hatred against them, speaking to Mount Seir, or prophetically speaking to the Edomites, them is a reference to the Israelites. And I will make myself known among them when I have judged you. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord. 
and that I've heard all thy blasphemies, which thou hast spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are laid desolate, they are given to us to consume. So this is prophetic language exhibiting the attitude and the intentions of the Edomites that they were going to take over the lands formerly belonging to Israel and Judah after the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, where all of Israel and Judah were taken off into captivity in Mesopotamia. So we see that after those deportations, the Edomites had made both Israel and Judah their own, and that the God of the Bible said that for that reason, they would not go unpunished. The Edomites had taken over much of the ancient land and many of the cities of Judah and Israel after the Babylonians had destroyed Jerusalem. And Ezekiel attributes these words to the Edomites. Thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess it. And historically, it can be demonstrated that they did indeed possess it. However, they did not take Jerusalem to themselves. They left it sit in rubble. And we see in Nehemiah, chapter 2, that when Nehemiah went to inspect the city of Jerusalem for the first time, he could hardly get into it because of the rubble left from its destruction nearly 70 years before. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, from verse 12, we read, And I rose up by night, I and a few men with me, and I told no man what God had put into my heart to do with Israel. And there was no beast with me except the beast which I rode upon. Now, Nehemiah is in a position to say these things because being a Judean of the captivity in Babylon, he had actually rose to a position of prominence within the Babylonian government. He was a wise and very trusted man. He was actually the cupbearer to the king. And he says, and I went forth by the gate of the valley by night and to the mouth of the well of fig trees and to the dung gate. And I mourned over the wall of Jerusalem, which they were destroying and her gates were devoured with fire. It should probably say which they had destroyed. And I passed on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool and there was no room for the beast to pass under me. And I went up by the wall of the brook by night and mourned over the wall and passed through the gate of the valley and returned. Now this passage illustrates that Jerusalem in Nehemiah's time still lay in heaps of rubble upon Nehemiah's first visit there. And also demonstrates the chronology of the, the periods of Ezra and Nehemiah, which we offer at Christogenia.org, where we assert that Nehemiah, and this can be demonstrated historically, Nehemiah was made governor of Jerusalem by the Persians a few years after this visit, from 502 to 490 BC. But Ezra was governor of Jerusalem from about 
457 B.C. Little is known of the internal politics of Judea from this time to the time of Alexander the Great, except that under Nehemiah and then under Ezra, the Judeans were allowed a great amount of autonomy and they were allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and, as it was decreed by the Persian king, they were allowed to, whoever wanted to, of the captivities of the time of the Babylonians, were allowed to return to Jerusalem to the land of their fathers to help rebuild the city and inhabit it. And, and that was the clemency of the Persians after the Persians had taken over Babylonia and the former Babylonian Empire. From the time of Ezra to the time of Alexander the Great, little is known of the internal politics of Judea and from the time of Alexander the Great on to the time of the kings, the, the priest kings, later known as the Maccabees, and the writing of the first book of Maccabees, which discusses events from about just after 160 B.C., very little is known. Uh, Bill, hang on a sec there. Um, I was just, just thinking there, I mean, um, wasn't there more than just the... Edomites there that had moved in there during that time, hadn't um, the Babylonians moved other tribes there, deliberately moved troublesome tribes there? I think they'd moved the Cuthites there. Um, I think there's a reference to Sephavaim as well being, being moved there, which may be where they get the term Sephardic or Sephardim for the um, Jews that we get today, may have taken their name. But that was another tribe, I think, that they moved there. And, and all these tribes caused a lot of trouble for the um for the uh the Judites that went back there to Jerusalem and and tried to stop them rebuilding and held up the rebuilding process for quite some time and uh they, they relayed lots of gossip and, and falsehoods back to uh back to Babylon at the time. And I just know that they, they caused a lot of trouble for them. And the the actual um people that went back there, it was only about ten percent of the of the whole tribe of Judah that had been removed to Babylon, wasn't it? So it was, it was only a, it was quite a small um, remnant of Judah that went back there. And when you think that uh, Judah was only one-twelfth of the tribes of Israel as well, so you think that that was only 1% of all the uh, tribes of Israel that actually went back to Jerusalem, if you use um, rough, you know, like a rough, roughly working it out. Would you um, go along with that? There were, um, it, it, it's a pretty complex story. There were actually about a, elements of at least a dozen other peoples moved into ancient Israel and, and later into ancient Judah by the Assyrians and the Babylonians at diverse times over the 140-year um, period, perhaps, from 680-something, or, or actually 720-something B.C. down through 580-something B.C., the period between the, um, the, the, the fall of Samaria 
and the eventual destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. Those peoples were, for the most part, it can be established that they were other white tribes of, the, of Mesopotamia and the areas controlled by the Assyrian Empire who had given the Assyrians trouble in their own homelands. So it was natural for the... It, it was um, a tactic of the Assyrians, let me put it that way, to take people who were causing political trouble in one area and move them forcibly to another area, to relocate them and settle them forcibly elsewhere. And that was a method of control used by the Assyrians that, um, that we see in the Bible itself and that we also see mentioned by the Greeks later in history that the Assyrians had done that same thing had uprooted entire cities of people and forced them to move to the other side of the empire and settle them in a strange place. And sometimes the, um, the Assyrians did that in order to form buffer states between Assyria and her enemies. So the Assyrians and, and later the Babylonians had relocated certain peoples from various places into Palestine in place of Israel and Judah. Now, during the Persian period, Cyrus the Great, the Persian king from about 539 or, or as late as 530 BC, had offered clemency to many of the other tribes as well to return to their original homelands. The people that... um that were moved into Palestine by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, for the most part. And the Sepharvim are a probable exception, but for the most part, and the Kuthians, because they're mentioned later in history, but for the most part, those peoples that are moved in, who are mentioned in the books of Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, are not found again mentioned by their original names in later history. Now there is a lot of um there is a lot of trouble between the Samaritans and the people who returned with Ezra and Nehemiah to Judea, to Jerusalem. But a lot of those Samaritans were not aliens from other places. A lot of those Samaritans were actually remnants of the Israelites who had been left behind. And that could be established both in, 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 in later scripture in the New Testament. So the Judeans did not accept those Samaritans as being legitimate Israelites because they had no, um, that they had no genealogy. Their genealogies were destroyed when Samaria was destroyed, and when the Assyrians destroyed the other capital cities of ancient Israel and took all the Israelites away. So because they had no genealogies, the returnees in the time of Zorobabel and Nehemiah and Ezra had despised those people and would not accept them as Israelites. So there was a lot of tension between the people in Jerusalem who were rebuilding the city and the people in the surrounding areas for multiple reasons. So I had a lot of history there going back. Also, it's um, 
it, it still goes on today, doesn't it? I mean, this is what the uh, what the Soviets did. They removed you know whole peoples from one area of, of a continent to another, and moved all these peoples around just to um, prevent trouble and to divide the people that are there. That's why I don't understand this um, diversity as a strength. Division is, is not a strength. And going right the way back through history, as we can see here, um, these empires moved people around precisely for that fact, that it was not a strength and it, and it weakened um, it weakened the nation that it was done to. And it was also there as, 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 a, as a, like a buffer zone between one nation and another, that they would put these people there. So it goes right back into history that um, mixing peoples together was a tool by, um, by these governments to actually weaken nations, not to strengthen them at all. It was, it was to weaken them. Just sort of to add that bit, um, if you want to continue, Bill. That the, um, most of the tribes that were brought in in the time of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, or before the time, I should say, of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the foreign tribes that were brought in by the Assyrians and Babylonians, most of them are never mentioned again. And by the time of the um, New Testament, the New Testament writers break people down in, in, in two different ways, either as Canaanites and Israelites, or Edomites and Israelites, and the Edomites and the Canaanites can be lumped together, or as Greeks and Judeans. And the distinguishment of Greeks and Judeans is one of, um, of culture and religion. It has nothing to do with race whatsoever, because even Greek was not a race. There was no Greek that identified himself as a Greek by race. Greek was a, um, a, a, a cultural identifier, whereas any um, Greek of the time would have identified himself after the manner of race by the tribe or the city to which he belonged, such as a Dorian or a Spartan or a Corinthian. And, and Spartans and Corinthians were both Dorians or, or an Athenian, that they wouldn't have identified themselves racially as Greeks because Greeks understood that people of several different races shared a, a, um, a common culture and language, which was termed Hellenistic or, or Greek. So Greek was not a racial distinction. And neither was Judean, as we shall see this afternoon. Over the 300 years following um, the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, the remnant of the Israelites, which had returned to Judea, had grown quite powerful. And this is in spite of the fact that they were often caught up in the wars between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids were the Greek rulers of Egypt and of Syria who were always competing with one another for control of the land in, in, the, in the Middle East, in, in Anatolia, in the islands of the Mediterranean. They were always at war over who would control them. In the time of a Levitical high priest named Judah Maccabee, 
and and the word Maccabee means hammer, and and that was a nickname that was given to him. The people of Jerusalem threw off the yoke of the Greek Seleucid kings who were ruling Syria, and thereby they gained independence relatively for Jerusalem in the middle of the second century BC. Thereafter, the Maccabees, who are also known by their family name as the Hasmonean dynasty, ruled in Judea as high priests and as kings. Originally, the Maccabees were rather heroic men who fought to keep Judea free from Hellenistic paganism and from multiculturalism, which was being forced on the people of Jerusalem by the Seleucids. From this period of the Hasmonean high priests, which began around 156 BC, the historian Flavius Josephus records battles by the early men of this dynasty, Judas Maccabee and his brothers, against the Edomites of Hebron, Marissa, and several other towns, in which at one point Marissa was burnt. There were no recorded attempts in this period, and the book, the first book of Maccabees, is a complete history of this period down to about 129 BC, which corroborates this. There were no recorded events to convert any of their enemies to their own religion at this time. Rather, whenever the original Maccabees had gone against a city of the Edomites or the Canaanites, they ran out or destroyed the mixed-race peoples from all of the cities they conquered. And that is fully evident in the first book of Maccabees, a book which used to be in the Protestant Bible and has been removed to the Apocrypha. But a couple of generations later, one of their descendants, one of the descendants of the original Maccabees, a man named Hyrcanus, chose to convert the Edomites and the other Canaanites and Arab peoples of the cities he had conquered, rather than to run them off or destroy them. It is not explained why he had chosen to do this, but it is clearly an abrupt change of policy from that of his predecessors. Speaking of a time around 125 BC, Josephus records in Antiquities Book 13 that Hyrcanus had taken Dora and Marisa, which the, his predecessors had burnt, but which was evidently rebuilt. Hyrcanus took also Dora and Marisa, cities of Edomia, and subdued all the Edomians, which is the same as the word for Edomites, and permitted them to stay in that country if they would submit to circumcision and make use of the laws of the Judeans. And they were so desirous of living in the country of their forefathers that they submitted to the right of circumcision and of the rest of the Judean ways of living 
At which time, therefore, this befell them, that they were hereafter considered to be Judeans. Now, Dora is the ancient city of Dor on the coast of Palestine, a city that had once belonged to the Israelites. And Marisa, in the Hebrew Old Testament, was called Marashah. And Marashah was a significant city of the people of the Israelites. And all of the cities around them were taken by John Hyrcanus around 125 B.C., and all of the people were forced to either vacate the land or convert to the religion of the people of Jerusalem, which is really not the Hebrew religion anymore because the Hebrew religion forbid the conversion of these people by name, explicitly, it forbid their conversion. The Hebrew religion would have never allowed or admitted the Canaanite or Edomite peoples into its polity. These people were per to be permanently excluded. So Hyrcanus has really changed the religion of Judea by accepting these people. From here on in, we may as well call this religion Judaism, but it's a corrupted version of the Hebrew faith, which is found in the Old Testament. Later, in that same book of Josephus' Antiquities, we see the much greater extent of the conversion of the surrounding Edomite and other non-Israelite peoples to Judaism, which took place while Alexander Janius was the high priest and king from about 103 down to 76 BC. And Josephus wrote of him, but Alexander marched again to the city of Dios and took it, and then made an expedition against Essa, where was the best part of Zeno's treasures. And there he surrounded the place with three walls. And when he had taken the city by fighting, he marched to Golan and Seleucia. And when he had taken these cities, he, besides them, took that city which is called the Valley of Antiochus, and also the fortress of Gamala. He also accused Demetrius, who was governor of those places of many crimes, and turned him out. And after he had spent three years in this war, he returned to his own country, when the Judeans joyfully received him upon his good success. Now at this time, the Judeans were in possession of the following cities that had belonged to the Syrians, and the Edomians and Phoenicians. And the Phoenicians at this time were a mixture of Canaanites, Greeks, and Syrians occupying ancient Phoenicia, a land which at one time belonged to the northern tribes of Israel. And Josephus continues and says, At the seaside, Stratos Tower, Apollonia, Joppa, Jamnia, Ashdod, Gaza, Antidon, Raphia, and Renoka, Kalura, in the middle of the country, near to Edomia, Adorn, and Marissa, near the country of Samaria, Mount Carmel, and Mount Tabat, Scythopolis, and Gadara, of the country of Golanitis, Seleucia, and Gabala, in the country of Moab, Heshbon, 
and Medaba, Lemba, and Aronis, Gelasan, Zara, the city of the Calicas, and Tella, which they last utterly destroyed because its inhabitants would not bear to change their religious rites for those peculiar, peculiar to the Judeans. The Judeans also possessed others of the principal cities of Syria, which they destroyed. After this, King Alexander, although he fell into a distemper by hard drinking, had a court in a goo which held him three years, yet would not stop going out with his army, till he was quite spent with the labors he had undergone and died in the bounds of Ragaba, a fortress beyond Jordan. Now, if Alexander Janius had destroyed some cities because they would not convert to Judaism, we can be certain that all of these other cities, which he did not destroy, but which he subjected, certainly did convert to Judaism, the practice of which Hyrcanus had initiated before him of forcibly converting to the religion of Judea all of those Canaanite and Edomite peoples whom he had conquered. Alexander died about 76 B.C., so we see that not only Edomites, but Moabites and many other cities occupied by the Canaanites and by the mixed races, as well as by Greeks and Syrians in this region, had all been converted to Judaism by this time. And none of these people should have ever been converted, especially these Edomites and Canaanites. Now, this is not long before the coming of the Romans. Of course, from this point, the Edomites eventually came to dominate all of Jerusalem and Judea, including the temple, which they had full control of by the time of Christ. That is why Christ, in John chapter 8, conceded that his adversaries were of Abraham's seed, because they were indeed descendants of Esau, but they were nevertheless an accursed people. <laughs> that they, I was going to say, Bill, it seems you know, they've completely forgotten the covenant of their forefathers, or, or this portion that um, were converting people by the sword, forcing this on them. They seem to have completely forgotten you know, the racial covenant of their forefathers. And uh, I know Josephus says that later on, the, the only um, religious sect that was actually purely bred from, from, from Israel was, was the Essenes. Both the Pharisees and the Sadducees um, were allowing these different um, groups in there and these different peoples that formerly had been, you know, completely excluded from, you know, having anything to do with it. But they were then part of the priesthood, but there was still this group that, that was still pure-born, that was still had their pure race, that was still white, and that was the Essenes. So there must have been a racially pure group all this time that actually rejected this. It's just that it's not really, you know, they can't find much records of it in this intertestamental period. But there must have been a group that, that rejected all of this and that kept to the covenant of their forefathers, because we, we hear about that in the, in the Essenes. So despite all of this going on, there were still some people that, um, that, that remembered how, you know, that, that 
that it was just for them and for nobody else. This proselytizing is, is completely right. Jesus um, spoke out against the proselytizing in um, Matthew chapter 23, verse 15. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. If you contrast that to the evangelical-type churches today that, that try to convert all the different races of the world and um, cast pearls before swine and show our scriptures to these creatures, you know, this is the same thing that was going on with, with the Judaism. It, but there was always a group that rejected that. There was always a group that rejected that and held fast to the faith of their, of their fathers and, and kept that from these other races, like, like we try to do today. Sorry, just all I needed to add that bit there. In, in, um, in Palestine at this time of Christ, the Essenes were basically political outcasts. Josephus describes the Essenes as um, Judah by birth as opposed to the other sects. And, and that's because Josephus recognized the lo- that a lot of the Pharisees and Sadducees were not Judah by birth. They were not truly Judahites, people, Israelites of the tribe of Judah. The Sadducees were, were um, practically all Edomites, and may have been all Edomites. The race of the Sadducees is um, the race of the high priests in Acts chapter 4 is distinguished from the countrymen of the apostles. And that, that's very clear. And, and, and the word race in the King James Bible, the word genos, which means race, is translated as kindred, I believe, in Acts chapter 4, where it refers to the high priest. But the kindred of the high priest would be the sugenos, or, or, the, or perhaps the oikaios, the household. The word genos is race more generally than sugenos, which is those of your close race or your kindred. The, um, the word genos is opposed in Acts chapter 4 to the word countrymen in rela- relation to the apostles, where it says that they returned to their own countrymen. They were released to their own countrymen. I think it's in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. It's, um, there's a lot of racial language in the New Testament which is obscured in the modern translations. <laughs> That's not a mistake. In, um, in Luke chapter 11, in John chapter 10, in, in um, John chapter 8, Christ tells his opponents in Jerusalem that they are of the seed of Cain. They are of the children of the devil. Cain was the first murderer. That's very clear in in Luke 11 that they're responsible for the blood of Abel. That they're the children of the devil who was a murderer from the beginning is a reference to Cain, which we see in John 8. In John 10, 26, Christ told them, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. They were not his sheep because they were not really Israelites, they were Edomites. 
the links from Esau to Cain lie in the identity of Esau's Canaanite wives and the intermingling of the Canaanites and the Kenites, or the descendants of Cain, in very ancient times, which is evident throughout the history of the Old Testament. And it's suggested in Genesis chapter 15. Where Christ told these Edomites that they were not his sheep, he's not talking in religious terms. Rather, he is using the terms of a pastoral society by which he denies that he is of the same flock that they are of, that they're of his flock. The allegorical language indicates that the people to whom he speaks are of a different race or tribe than his own. From Persian, Greek, and Roman records, we can see that from before the Hellenistic period, all of the southern portions of the land once known as Judah and Israel were called Edomia after the Edomites, in which, in the time of Christ, was considered a part of the province, the Roman province of Judea. It is clear from those records that Edomia and Gaza were part of the Roman province of Judea. Many modern Jews attempt to deny the absorption of the Edomites and their adoption of Judaism. However, not all modern Jews are actually descended from those Edomites. Strabo, the Greek geographer, supports the details which are supplied by Josephus. And the early first century Greek geographer and historian attests that the Edomites or Edomians were mixed up with the Judeans, their Strabo's words, and that they joined the Judeans and shared in the same customs with them. And we find that in Book 16, Chapter 2 of Strabo's Geography. Even in the Wikipedia article, if you search Wikipedia for Herod Archelaus, the son and successor of that Herod whom the Jews called the Great, we read the following, and I'm going to quote from Wikipedia. Herod Archelaus, 23 BC to 18 AD, was ethnarch, not king, of Samaria, Judea, and Edomia or Biblical Edom, as it says in parentheses, from 4 B.C. to 6 A.D., and appointed by Caesar Augustus when Judea province was formed under direct Roman rule at the time of the census of Quirinius. So, of course, according to the Gospel of Luke, the census of Quirinius was shortly after the birth of Christ. And this is when the province known as Judea was formed, and even Wikipedia admits that the province was formed from Samaria, which is the ancient Israelite land of Ephraim, and there weren't too many Israelites left there after the Assyrian deportations. And Judea, or the ancient land of Judah, and Edomia which is the ancient land of Edom. And we've seen in Ezekiel and elsewhere 
that many of those Edomians had moved into the cities of Samaria and Judah after the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. So some, even of Samaria, Judea, and Edomia, much of Samaria and Judea were inhabited by Edomites as well as Edomia. And we see in, um, in the histories of Josephus that all these people were converted to Judaism 120 years before the province of Judea was formed by the Romans. Now, there was a population of true Israelites in Galilee and in Jerusalem, but they were mixed in, in Jerusalem, they were mixed in with the Edomites as well. So we have a, what well, we have a multicultural province when Rome creates the province. It's not an Israelite nation by any means. It's a multicultural province which was for a time dominated by the Israelites, but had come by the time of Christ to be dominated by Edomites. And we're going to examine that next. I'm just going to uh, add there, Bill, that um, outside of Judea province was Perea and Galilee. So Jesus being from Galilee, he was not even a Judean from the Judea province. Galilee was outside of the uh, Judea province. It's just an interesting um, little bit there. As I was looking through it today, let's find out about the Tetrarchy and the, the Ethnarchy and the Judea province. But outside of um, uh, Judea, Samaria, and Edomia was Perea and Galilee, and Herod's Antipas was the tetrarch of that area. And again, he was Edomian. And Wikipedia um, states that uh, Herod was Edomian as well. He, he was half uh, Arab and, and half Edomian. And the Edomians were Arab anyway, by by all standards. You know, they were they were mixed race. They were part Canaanite and uh, part. Um, Esau. So the Edomians were essentially the same as the Arabs anyway. And uh, all, the, all the Herods were looked down upon. And they're talked of as being of ignoble birth, meaning of, of mixed parentage. And that, that's the term that uh, Flavius Josephus uses, is ignoble birth. Um, so I mean, it's all borne out by, uh, by the um, historical documents, what we're saying. It's not, you know, it's just fantasy, is it? So, you know, it's all documented history. And so it's, it's even there on Wikipedia, this about Edomia being part of it. Well, well, there are four places that I could recall in Josephus's um, writings where either Herod or Herod's father are identified as Edomites. And where Herod is, is said to be an Edomite, not only through his father, but also through his mother. So he's a full-blooded Edomite, if there could be such a thing. The word Arab in Hebrew is a word which means mixed. It comes from a verb which means to darken, to grow dark. And there's only one way that people grow dark, and that's by mixing their blood with the dark races. The... Um, the, the Arabs had done just that by mixing their blood with the 
Nubian slaves. Originally, the word Arab means to darken of, of, um, as a verb and of people, and it came to mean mixed as in something that was um, hopelessly mixed and, and basically couldn't be retrieved. It, it's something that was basically worthless because it was mixed. The land itself was named after the uh, not after the people there, the mixed people there as well, because the Arabs would say today, oh, we, we're named after Arabia, but it's not, it's the other way around. Arabia was named after the Mongol race that was living there. And there's one um, concordance, an online concordance, and it, when you look up um, Arab, it actually says Mongol race, as in one of the terms that it means is Mongol race. You can't get any clearer than that. Even in the Bible, the, the term for mixed in the phrase mixed multitude, where it says that a mixed multitude followed the children of Israel out of Egypt, that word is Arab, and that's the word from which we get the word Arab. The word Arab comes from a word which means mixed. The land was named Arabia because it became to be inhabited by these mixed tribes, tribes that did not keep their races pure. According to Josephus in his Antiquities, in Book 14, that same Alexander Janius, who had absorbed all of those Edomite and Canaanite cities into the polity and religion of Judea, had also appointed the father of Herod, the future king, who was named Antipater, to office, and Josephus says that King Alexander and his wife made him, meaning Antipater, general of all Edomia, and that he made a league of friendship with those Arabians and Gazites and Ascalonites. Now, some of those people were descendants of the ancient Philistines, and they were ostensibly mixed with the Canaanites as well, that were of his own party and had, by many and large presents, made them his fast friends. Now, Josephus tells us in four places in his writings that Antipater and Herod were Edomites. And as soon as Antipater gained this office, Josephus begins to describe the conspiracies which he began to contrive among the princes and rulers in Judea. Antipater Antipater began accusing one prince against another and, and causing divisions in the house of Alexander Janius in Judea, in Jerusalem. Through his plots, Antipater had ingratiated himself with John Hyrcanus II, who became high priest and ruler of Judea and stayed in that office from 70 BC down to 40 BC. And Josephus described John Hyrcanus too as slow and slothful. And Antipater convinced Hyrcanus to appoint two of Antipater's sons. One was named Phasahelus, and the other one was named Herod to be the governors of Jerusalem and Galilee, respectively. 
from the very outset, the men of Judea had constant accusations and struggles with Herod and his brother, Thessalus. In the meantime, Herod received as a bride the daughter of John Hyrcanus II, the high priest, who was totally under the influence of Antipater, Herod's father. Then, in the time of the civil wars of Julius Caesar, the Herodian family ingratiated itself with the Romans, and it maintained and even strengthened its position in Judea. Josephus writes in Book 14 of his Antiquities, But Messala, one of the Judeans, opposed them on behalf of the young men, and all this in the presence of Hyrcanus, who was Herod's father-in-law already. When Antony, and that's a reference to Mark Antony, who at the time had shared the Roman government with Octavian and Lepidus in the second triumvirate, when Antony had heard both sides at Daphne, he asked Hyrcanus who they were that governed the nation best. Hyrcanus replied, Herod and his friends. Hereupon, Antony, by reason of the old hospitable friendship he had made with his father, meaning Antipater, at that time, when he was with Gabinius, he made both Herod and Phasahelus, Herod's brother, tetrarchs, and committed the public affairs of the Judeans to them, and wrote letters to that purpose. Now, we see that Herod had ingratiated, and Herod's family had ingratiated themselves to the Romans, and especially to Mark Antony, and that's, um, that, that, that the fruits of that come out even later as we proceed through this history. But shortly after um, Antony had made Herod and his brother Tetrarchs, there was a man named Antigonus, a son of Aristobulus, the son of Alexander Janaeus. Now, he would have been the, um, the nephew of John Hyrcanus too. And Antigonus, not liking the direction that Judea had taken under Hyrcanus and the Edomite Antipater, had gone to Parthia and appealed to the Parthians and for their help in the affairs of Judea. Antigonus managed to impeach Hyrcanus and Antipater with the assistance of the Parthians, and along with them, he impeached Herod. And Herod's brother, Phasahelus, was put to death by the Parthians at this time. However, Herod himself managed to sail to Rome and once again bribe Mark Antony with a handsome sum of money. And he got Antony to have the Roman Senate announce that Herod was the king of Judea. And this was possible because at the time the Romans were at war with the Parthians. And this is all described in Josephus' Antiquities, Book 14. In Josephus' Antiquities, Book 15, he also writes that as soon as Herod gained power in Judea, 
he despised the office of high priest, where he says he also did other things in order to secure his government, which yet occasioned a sedition in his own family, meaning the family he married into, for being cautious how he made any illustrious person the high priest of God, he sent for an obscure priest out of Babylon, whose name was Ananalus, and bestowed the high priesthood upon him. In his early years, Herod was constantly threatened and was always paranoid about retaining his government. So in the first decades of his long rule, which was just about 40 years, he killed most of the princes in Jerusalem. He killed his own wife, Marianne, the daughter of Hyrcanus, whom he married, and he killed the sons which he had with her, who were grown men at the time of their deaths. He killed several of his other sons, and anyone else whom he thought may threaten his rule in Judea, he had put to death. In the meantime, Herod began, in the manner of um, another Edomite, Franklin Roosevelt, Herod began many magnificent building projects, taxing the people of Judea in order to build these public works and aqueducts and stadiums and cities. And, and he made many friends in Judea and ingratiated many of the people of Judea by that very means. The same way we see American politicians do it today under the influence of those very same Edomites. Now, while Joseph, Josephus does not summarize in detail how Herod had replaced the men who fulfilled the administrative positions of the government of Judea with those of his own tribe of the Edomites, it is nevertheless evident that in many places he did so. Among those places is the story of Costobarus from Antiquities Book 15. Costobarus was an Edomian by birth and one of principal dignity among them and one whose ancestors had been priests to Koza, whom the Edomians had formerly esteemed as a god. But after Hyrcanus had made a change in their political government and made them receive the Judean customs and law, Herod made Costobarus governor of Edomia and Gaza and gave, it, gave him his sister Salome to wife. And this was upon the slaughter of his uncle, Joseph, who had that government before, as we have already related. When Costobarus had gotten to be so highly advanced, it pleased him and was more than he hoped for, and he was more and more puffed up by his good success, and in a little while he exceeded all bounds and did not think fit to obey what Herod, as their ruler, commanded him, or that the Edomians should make use of the Judean customs or be subject to them. So Costobarus was then described as having tried to overthrow Herod, an endeavor in which he failed. <laughs> that the Edomians indeed retained the appearance of keeping the Judean customs and a Judean identity 
is evident throughout the subsequent chapters of Josephus's histories. However, they brought all of their old habits along with them, and it is clear that the nature of that Judaism which resulted in the Talmud is absolutely contrary to the Hebrew religion of Yahweh, which we see in the Hebrew Bible. Later in that same book, Josephus describes how, after Herod proceeded to eradicate the entire family of the Hasmoneans in order to further secure his position as king. He then wrote in Antiquities Book 15 in line 266 that insomuch that there were now none at all left of the kindred of Hyrcanus, and the kingdom was entirely in Herod's own power, and there was no one remaining of such dignity as could, as could put a stop to what he did against the Judean laws. Later, in Book 20 of his Antiquities, Josephus says that Herod was then made king by the Romans, but did no longer appoint high priests out of the family of Hasmonius but made certain men to be so that there were of no eminent families, but barely of those who were priests, excepting that he gave the dignity to Aristobulus. For when he had made this Aristobulus, the grandson of that Hyrcanus, who was then taken by the Parthians, and had taken his sister Mariam to wife, he thereby aimed to win the goodwill of the people who had a kind of remembrance of Hyrcanus. Yet did he afterward, out of his fear, lest they should all bend their inclinations to Aristobulus, put him to death, and that by contriving how to have him drowned as he was swimming at Jericho, as we have already related that manner. But after this man, he never entrusted the priesthood to the posterity of the sons of Hasmonius. Archelaus, also Herod's son, did like his father in the appointment of the high priests, as did the Romans also, who took the government over the Judeans into their own hands afterward. Accordingly, the number of the high priests from the days of Herod until when Titus took the temple in the city and burnt them were in all 28. The time also that belonged to them was 107 years. Some of these were the political governors of the people under the reign of Herod and under the reign of Archelaus his son, although after their death, the government became an aristocracy, and the high priests were entrusted with a dominion over the nation, and thus which may suffice to be said concerning our high priests. Now, in other places in Josephus, and, and Sven, I'll let you um, say what, what, you, what you desire to after, a, after I just mentioned this, because I am prepared to um, exhibit it at length. In okay. 107 years mentioned by Josephus, the Sadducees, and particularly one family of the Sadducees, had the high priesthood for most of that time. And it could be established 
that the majority of those, those high priests were Sadducees and they were Edomites. They were not Judahites. And they operated the high priesthood as a crime ring. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to. I was going to say. I mean, after um, Herod was killed, I mean, he or, or he died. It was um, five days after he had just killed one of his sons, and what he actually died of is putrefaction of his genitals that produced worms, and also dropsy and tumours. I mean, the guy was really, really suffered before he died. And uh, the, all the people were saying, well, this is your just repayment for the slaughter of the teachers, because he had slaughtered a large amount of teachers and all the holy men that he had um, that he'd got rid of, um, getting rid of everyone, really, and putting his own people in their place. And when he actually died, he knew that people would, would, weren't going to want to mourn him, so he had actually put it in place that... He'd actually put some good people in prison, and the order was that when he died, all these good people were to be put to death, so that the Judahites would then go into mourning. So it looked like they were mourning for him. But while he was um, sick and coming up to the end of his death, um, one of the people in the in the palace freed these these men. And then after he died, he had his certain amount of time of mourning when the, when the people mourned him as was their custom and then after that a large group of them went to Rome to put in a claim against him and basically there was 50 ambassadors that went there and they had 8,000 witnesses with them and this is after Herod has actually died and they went there and they said, said to Caesar I'll just quote this, this is from uh, Wars of the Judeans chapter 6 part 2 and this is what they actually said to him, that he had not only tortured the bodies of his subjects, but entire cities, and had done much harm to the cities of his own country, while he adorned those that belonged to foreigners. And he shed the blood of Judah in order to do kindness to those other people that were out of their bounds, that he had filled the nation full of poverty and of the greatest iniquity, instead of that happiness and those laws which they had anciently enjoyed, that in short, Judah had borne more calamities from Herod in a few years than had their forefathers during all that interval of time that had passed since they had come out of Babylon and returned home under the reign of Xerxes. Now, I think we're saying there, because of their forefathers, this is obviously not the Edomians um, here, this, this is the Judahites that, uh, that have gone, gone to see Caesar. And uh, the speech that they make, it, it ends up with a, with a request to administer the government by their own commanders. So these Judahites were really not happy with, with Herod. He put idols in the temple, spent money, the, the holy money on things that he shouldn't have done, and killed all these people. And yet you've got the Jews today that call him Herod the Great. And their wailing wall is something that Herod built. You know, that they're going there to honour. And there is um, reports that that Wailing Wall was actually a Christian refuse dump, and it wasn't even anything to do with Herod. But the Jews themselves think that that was part of an extension to a temple that Herod built. And of course, um, the New Testament tells us that that temple was utterly destroyed. There's nothing left of it. So, 
you know, someone's telling a lie there, and it's obviously the Jews that are. But they honour Herod, and they think he's he's fantastic. As I say, they call him Herod the Great. And yet when you look at history, the Judahites hated him, and he utterly persecuted them. So how can these Jews of today claim to be these same people as the tribe of Judah from back then? You know, they can't be the same people as back then, because Herod was the enemy to the tribe of Judah. And yet these Jews today, they, they honour Herod, Herod the Great, they, they think he's wonderful. And again, that's admitting that they are not the tribe of Judah. They're descended from the Edomians. You know, they even say it in their encyclopedia that um, Edom is to be found in modern Jewry. And it's quite clear that, that, that they're not the tribe of Judah. And if you look back through history, you can see this. I mean, right the way through um you know, Josephus's work, he's talking about the Edomians and the ignoble birth and uh, those who were Judah by birth and he makes a point of saying that he's from Judah by birth because there was all this confusion. And it, it all it all comes came about at that time with um, John Hacanus forcing the Edomites to follow the Judean customs. And as I said with that with that verse that I mentioned earlier from Matthew, and it's quite clear that, that Christ was condemning this. That this this is not the way that it's supposed to be. You're not supposed to be um, bringing other people in, into it. You, you can't bring other people into it. The whole point of the of the Hebrew faith was that it was specifically for one one people. It wasn't meant for bastards. It wasn't meant for Mongols. It wasn't meant for Arabs. It was purely meant for white people. Purely meant for for those white people descended from um, Jacob Israel. There's another point that I found in um, in these histories of, of Josephus. He writes that in the Passover, I think it was 56 AD, he says that there were three million people at that Passover. And if you think that um, the remnant that went back from Jerusalem was only 1%, then that means that that three million is just 1% of, of the possible Israelites that were around at that time. So where were the other... 300 million of them. You know, they had to be somewhere. The Jews tell you that they just disappeared. They, they obviously didn't just disappear because you got we got records of them and we can we can follow them in, into Europe with the, by um, looking at the at the records of the time that say where the Israelites are moved to, and then the names that they actually called those Israelites, like we have on the, the Berenstain, um rock carving and uh, like the tablets in the library at Nineveh, which make it clear that these Israelites became the, um, the Cymri and the Gomri, became the Cimmerians and the, and the Anglo-Saxons. So I find that, you know, there's another confirmation of this in, in the history of Josephus, just by the numbers that he gives for these people that were at the Passover. And if you think, well, okay, well, they, they converted these other peoples, well, you could say, well, that could only account for half, because these Judeans conquered the Edomites, so the Edomites can't have been more than the Judeans. So you can only say that that's half, so maybe one and a half million at the, at the very least were, were Judahites that were at this Passover, which, which would still mean 150 million Israelites elsewhere in the world just at that time. You know, just at that time then, that, that these people were there. And of course, in the, um, in the New Testament, you've got uh, epistles that are actually written to these people. So I think you know this is this is all, all proof that these people that call themselves the Jews today they're they're nothing to do with these people 
with the people from the Bible. They're nothing to do with, with Judah. And if Herod was, was an absolute monster, and he killed, killed half of his family, he was, he was incestuous as well, and he was the king of the Jews. He was the, the, the king that the, the, the Romans made into the king of the Jews. Now, the, the real Judahite bloodline was, was the royalty in Europe at that time, which can be shown going back through to um, Zara, through Judah, which we've gone into um, at other, in other podcasts. So this, this fake king, this, this Herod, um, he was a fake king, and that's who the Jews honor today. And I also found out recently that the Freemasons claimed that they go back to um, King Herod as well. And there was obviously Herod, um, he chopped off John the Baptist's head. And apparently the, the Templars, the Freemasons, so they go back to the Templars, but the Templars supposedly had this, this magic head. And uh, it looks like there there's, could be a link through to, the, to um, Herod through that way as well, through John the Baptist, who, who was beheaded. But these Freemasons have this link, and they claim to go back to Herod as well. So you've got Jews and Freemasons that, that honour this guy, and, and they call him Herod the Great. He murdered all these people. You know, 8,000 people went to Rome as witnesses to support the claims of, of the horrific things that he did. And that's who the Jews think is great. I mean, and then you look at the people that, that we Europeans have as great. You know, we have Alfred the Great, who translated the Bible in, into English. He fought the Vikings off. There were only six people in the entire kingdom that could read when King Alfred took power. And he brought in people from the church, from the, from the Celtic church, from Wales, to instruct his people. And he made sure that every nobleman could learn to read. He wrote down the laws of the country that we had beforehand and insisted that um, anybody that uh, couldn't read had to go and have these lessons. And he would sit in on the, on the trials to see that the judges were, were doing things right. And he made it so that people could, and you didn't have to be of high birth to actually be taught. So, you know, if you showed aptitude, then, then you could be taught at these schools. He invented, um, he invented his, well, they claim he invented quite a few things. He invented um, a candle clock, um, a windproof candle clock. He, he, he made up these boats so that they could go out into the, um, uh, into the channel there and fight against, well, the channels around the, around the island so that they could fight against the Vikings. Um, he, they wrote down the, the, the life of Alfred the Great. And he was a great man. That, that's who, who we call someone who was great. And yet the Jews call somebody who was great, who bribed their way to power, killed all the teachers, killed all the, all the holy men, you know, and went down in history in infamy. And that's what they think is great. Killed all of his own family. He started a dynasty of, of, um, of perverts and, and, and miscegenators. Well, well, they were miscegenated. And, and, and um, wow, how, how many of the Herods, there were Herod, Herod, Herod Agrippa was living in, in a um, conjugal relationship with his own sister, Berenice. They're mentioned, Herod Agrippa II and Berenice are mentioned in the book of Acts. Um, Herod and, and Philip and, and Herod the Tetrarch had exchanged daughters for wives, or, or they were both, Herod the Tetrarch was married to Philip's daughter after she had been married to somebody else. It, it, it was a whole, um, the, the whole family had an, 
a history of incest and, and all sorts of other perversions. The, um, the, the family of Herod is no doubt venerated by the Jews today, even though that they were incestuous, perverted tyrants who did buy their way to power and did everything they could through, through um, intrigue to claim an inheritance that, that, that they by no means deserved. And, and that is the nature of the Jews today themselves, claiming an inheritance that they could never deserve. So the Jewish hero is basically patterned after their that their own that that their own idols, the things that they venerate, the things that the Jews practice, they choose to um to idolize and calling Herod the Great that they show us their true nature because Herod was anything but great. Uh, unless um what we append the adjectives crook and swindler after the word great. <laughs> the the, um, the Sadducees are very little that they receive very little acknowledgement in connection with the Jews, but the Sadducees are in fact that the spiritual forerunners of, of of Jewish progressives today, and 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 of all the Bolsheviks, the Sadducees denied anything spiritual, they denied anything transcendental, and they denied that um, God would judge the deeds of men as to whether they were good or they were evil. The Pharisees denied all of that. The Pharisees, the, uh, I mean the Sadducees, I'm sorry. The Sadducees denied all of that, and they even denied that God cared for anything happening in the world. They virtually removed the hand of God absolutely from world history and from the affairs of man, and they did everything except that they fell short, they stopped short of denying God himself. They never denied the existence of a God, but they may as well have. And the high priests at the time of Christ were Sadducees, and Josephus describes in Acts chapter 20 how the Sadducees had basically even um, had no regard for Roman law and circumvented it every chance that they could get. They circumvented Roman law so that they could execute their own injustices, so that they could execute men without trials, men who didn't deserve to die. It's the Sadducees that killed Christ. It's the Sadducees that attempted to kill the Apostle Paul. The Sadducees did kill both of the apostles named James, the um, the Sadducees, as Josephus, Josephus describes it, were actually stealing the tithes which the people gave to the Levites and forcing the Levites into starvation. And they were taking their tithes by force. So the Sadducees were oppressing the Levitical priests. 
And Josephus describes that in his 20th book at great length, in, in great detail. And, and the Sadducees were basically the crime lords of ancient Judea. They were persecuting the priests, that they were overtaxing the people, that they were living high on a hog off the fat of the land. And, and, and it's they who were responsible for the death of Christ, the arrest of Paul, the death of the Apostle James, and for many crimes. And, and the Sadducees aren't really um, connected to today's Jews, but they are, but without doubt, they are the spiritual and genetic forerunners of the Bolsheviks and, and the Jews who sit in Washington today. So, so that's something that perhaps we can examine at a future time. When we see the crimes perpetrated by the Sadducees, and then we see the crimes perpetrated by the Bolsheviks, we see the same pattern among these Jewish people, the same pattern of, of satanic behavior that we saw in the New Testament as well. Well, so one of the um, things that I just thought of then is, you know, you've got these Pharisees and these Sadducees. Where's their commission in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, you have you have the Levites, and you have um, the priests, the eternal priesthood of Phineas, who put to death the race mixers that were copulating in, in front of the tribes. You put them to death, and there was an eternal priesthood. You've got the Levitical priesthood, and you've got the Melchizedek priesthood. And they're, they're the priesthoods in the Old Testament that are... Um, started, they're blessed by God. But then you've got these people that are running things called Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I know the Pharisees were involved with, with the law, but as you say, hey, the Sadducees, I've heard that they were the forerunner of the atheists because they took, they took God out of everything. And it said that there was no, no life after death, there was, there was no providence, and man could pretty much do whatever, whatever he wanted. And this, this was their philosophy. So you could see that they were atheistic and, and, and hedonistic. And, and yeah, that's, that is what the, the Jews are like today. That is what they, what they promote. And uh, th that's where they get it from. So it's, once you look into this, I don't see how anyone can think that, that, that the Jews are anything to do with, with um, the Israelites of the Old Testament. And the, the whole Talmud is, negates all the laws of the Old Testament. Their festivals are outlawed. I mean, you know, they're not supposed to make up new festivals like they have done with um, that one they got from Esther. And if you look at these Essenes, who, who um, Josephus said were of pure birth, they had all the Old Testament books there, apart from the book of Esther. And they honoured their forefathers. You know, it was a really important thing of them was to honour their forefathers and to obey the law, obey the law of Moses. And if you look at... Um, Galilee, where, where Jesus was from, they were really up on the law as well. That was the center of the people that were um, interested in, in studying the law. And Jerusalem was, uh, I, I, it must, Jerusalem must have been, you know, pretty degenerate, I would say. It must have been the center of the, of the degeneracy in that area, really, which was, you know, why, or another one of the reasons why Jesus spoke so negatively of it. And, and why the temple was destroyed, you know, why Jerusalem was pretty much flattened. There's nothing more good that, that could come out of it. It was race-mixed, it was mongolized. The pure Judahites that were left recognized Christ, 
and they, they became Christians. And the Mongolized Edomites that had taken on some of these warped um, Judahite laws and, and twisted them for their Talmud, they then became these Jews that then went, uh, carried on with their proselytizing and their converting of these other races, converted to Khazars and, and became Khazars. You look at them today, they're all mongrelized. And the, the gospel of Christ was just brought to the people that it was meant for, that it was brought to his sheep, it was brought to the European people. It wasn't brought to the Chinese, it wasn't brought to the, to the Negroes in Africa. They might say, to them, oh, well, what about the Ethiopian church or these churches that were there? Well, the aristocracy in Ethiopia were white up until the 6th century. These, when it talks about the Ethiopian eunuch, he was white because he was, he was versed in the scriptures. He would not have been versed in the scriptures or read the old scriptures and been able to converse with Paul if he'd just been a Negro slave. You know, he had to have been white. And these people, that, the first Christians that were in these hot countries, you know, they were white people living there. This is why I, I, you know, I get frustrated today when people say, "Well, what about you know, like this this guy back then that was in uh, Ethiopia, or this guy back then that was in Carthage, or or in Libya?" Well, they were white just because they're a, a, a different colour there now doesn't mean that they were that colour back then. And just because you've got these people claiming to be Judah now with, with their hook nose and their Canaanite features doesn't mean that the original people of Judah were like that. You know, and it clearly weren't like that. And Josephus is, is uh, you know, he, he makes a real point of saying that he is he's purebred Judahite in distinction to these Edomite Edomians, who the Jews today admit that they are, but they just people don't seem to have picked up on it publicly. And just one thing that I um, noticed the other day, I and mean, this is the earliest reference I found to Europeans pointing out the fact that um, uh, the Jews are Edomites and Khazars. And this was around 1940. And it's um, Frederick Haberman, I think his name is, in a book called Tracing Our Ancestors. And he points out the fact that um, today's Jews are Khazars and Edomites. And he makes a reference to um, this. It may cause a bit of upset in, to Germany. At the time, it was Hitler was um, in power at Germany because they were they were taken in by the Jews. They believed that the Jews were the people of the Old Testament. And yet this author was pointing out the fact that they weren't, and this might cause some consternation there once it's found out. But I don't know if you've come across it any earlier than, than that, Bill, apart from the Jewish Encyclopedia. Have you come across it any earlier than that, 1940, people pointing out this fact? Well, well Arthur Kostler was a copycat. He was not an original writer. A lot of people think that Kostler... Um, came up with this idea that the Ashkenazi Jews had, had converted and, and mixed with the Khazars, and, and that they're really Khazars. And, and it's not true that that, that, that was revealed or, or began with Arthur Kostler. Arthur Kostler is getting credit for it, but it was really um, first written by a Jewish historian named Heinrich Gretz a hundred years before Kostler. A hundred years before Kostler, Heinrich Gretz wrote a voluminous history, the history of the Jews, in seven volumes. And I possess six of those volumes. And, and um, 
Klickenemmerheiser has a different copy, and he has all seven. But I'm I'm not, and I don't think I'll be investing any more money in in Gretz anyway. But Heinrich Gretz wrote, he he actually recounted the history of the Edomites, the Edomite Jews, and and he didn't call them Edomites, but he called them Jews who who migrated into um what was what became known as Khazaria. In, in the 6th century A.D., and how they converted the nation of the Khazars to Judaism. And once they converted the noble classes of the Khazars, the nation followed, and that they had actually been able to intermarry with the Khazars after that time. And that the Khazar people are basically an amalgamation of Khazar and what we would consider Edomite Jew. So, so that was told a hundred years. That story was told over a hundred years before Arthur Kostler. Well, yeah, people were, why don't people work it out? I mean, Edom, the Edomites, the people against the Lord has indignation forever. You know, the people that are cursed in the Bible. I mean, oh, the evidence is there. Sorry, Bill, you still there? I'm sorry about that. I pulled out my mic and speaker cables. It, it's okay. the New Testament. It, it's clear in 1 John chapter 2 where he says that many antichrists have already been born and, and that they came out from us, but they were not of us. John uses that term antichrist in the plural of those people in Palestine who denied the Christ at his time. He says they came out from us, but they were not of us. And he's basically basically telling us in his own way, in his first epistle, that these people are not Israelites, even though they came from Israel. Paul, in Romans chapter 9, is much more explicit, where he says that not all of those from Israel are of Israel. And Paul goes on to compare Israelites and Edomites in Romans chapter 9. <laughs> Excuse me. And Paul calls the Israelites vessels of mercy and the Edomites vessels of destruction. So Paul is very clearly drawing the acceptance or rejection of Christ along racial lines in Romans chapter 9. And in the Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, it mentions those calling themselves Judeans, but who are not, who are of the synagogue of Satan. And these are the Edomite Jews. Paul um, calls them Satan again in Romans chapter 16. He calls them Satan again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. They are Satan. They are the historic adversaries of God and of the people of Israel. They had taken over the identity as his people, which is what Paul's telling us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 
as well as in Romans chapter 9. And it's what Christ is telling us in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. So the New Testament, even though most um, modern readers aren't really familiar with the language it uses, the New Testament is very, very clearly telling us that these people in Palestine who rejected Christ in the first century are not Israelites. They are Edomites and other varieties of Canaanite. And Christ rejected them, as we see in his encounter with the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 7. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 15 or Mark chapter 7. Herod calls her a dog. I says, Jacob, have I laughed and, and Esau, have I hated? How, how can any Christian minister or ministers of these churches that supposedly know their Bible and know their New Testament, how can any of them accept these Jews at all in any way, shape or form? You know, say that they're elder brothers in the faith or allow them to convert or even join the church or allow them to have anything to do with um, translation of the Bible. I mean, how can they have anything to do with them when it's quite clear and quite specific that they are hated by God? I mean, they may be calling themselves Jews, maybe calling themselves Judah, but you would expect these educated people in the church to know that today's Jews are descended from Edom. It says it in their in their um, in their encyclopedia, as well as all the all the references in in Flavius Josephus, where it points it out. How do they get away with denying that, Bill? I just you know I'm amazed at it, really, to be honest, because they're supposed to be they're supposed to know these scriptures. They're they're paid to to read this stuff and and learn it. So how can they deny it like that? Does it just go straight past them? Do you think? In America and in England, we have a lot of people who we would call niggers, right? And we can skip a, a pattern of race mixing today where perhaps in a few centuries, most people might be niggers. And a real white Englishman or a real white American would take offense to being called an American or an Englishman, if they were going to be lumped together with these with these niggers, it's that simple. You don't want to be identified with them. In first century Judea, we have the real white Israelite apostles and 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 Christ, and then we have all of these mixed race people who are identified as Jews. So if we consider the real white Israelites and all of these mixed race peoples are identified as Jews, if you were one of those white Israelites, would you want to be identified as a Jew? Would you want to be lumped together with them? Of course not. It's not fair if 80% of London is overrun with niggers. It's not fair to lump the 20% of the people who, who, are, who are overrun, who remain. It's not fair to lump them together with the niggers in, in 
a manner which identifies them racially. Because the word Jew can refer to the religion or to that mixed race of people who came out of Palestine in the first century, it's not fair to lump the other apostles and Christ in with them because they're not of the same fabric. They're not made of the same stuff. The true white Israelites could never be labeled as Jews. It's not right to consider Christ a Jew because these Jews are descended from mixed race Edomites and Canaanites, and the original people of Judah were not. And that's why Jesus was not a Jew. Just like George Washington came from Richmond, Virginia, which today is like 70% black, but George Washington wasn't black. And I'm using that as a loose example. Yet you can't call every New Yorker a nigger. So just because most New Yorkers might be niggers doesn't mean that the original New Yorkers are. The same thing with ancient Palestine. Just because most of the people of ancient Judea were mixed race and, and kept that identity as Jews doesn't mean that the original inhabitants could properly be labeled as Jews because they weren't. They weren't anything like these later people. Now the later people are hated by God and the, the white ones of Israel are left by him. Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. You know, that's, that's the verse. Well, it's very clear that Judea, what was a, a, um, a, a polyglot, polyethnic society, that um, these people called Jews today are the result of that ancient race mixing. But that doesn't mean that the original inhabitants were Jews. They certainly were not. The original inhabitants, the original bearers of the Hebrew culture, were white, just like the original bearers of American and English culture are white. And simply because we have all these other races speaking English in our lands, that doesn't mean that the original people should be associated with them. And, and well, it's like just because just just because Obama is in the White House doesn't mean the place was built by niggers. If if um right exactly if secular white nationalists um refuse to acknowledge the recorded history of Judea and and refuse to acknowledge that the original people of Judah and Israel were white, which history clearly proves, then they are doing so for an um, e emotional or, or political purpose that benefits the Jews. Secular white nationalists refusing to um, look at the actual history of Judea, they are benefiting the Jews who claim a heritage that is not theirs. And secular white nationalists become accomplices to the Jew. They become accomplices to the theft, especially David Duke. All the time, he'll criticize the Jews and then he'll, he'll bring up some verses from the Old Testament. 
as just the Jews to the people that wrote the Old Testament, as just handing over our heritage to the Jews and, and making out that they are something that they are not and that they're capable of something that they are not. You, know, you just have to look, take one look at the Talmud and compare it to the Old Testament to see that they would never be capable of writing anything like the Old Testament. Kevin MacDonald does the same thing. All of these secular white nationalists do the same thing. They concede the Old Testament to the Jews simply because there's a couple of verses in there that they like to quote that seems to fit the Jewish nature. But you could find a couple of verses in Pilgrim's Progress that, that you might be able to use in, in light of niggers, but that doesn't mean the pilgrims were niggers. And, and I'm just using that as an example, but you could misuse any ancient literature in that manner. The Bible is clearly not a Jewish book. The Bible condemns homosexuality. The Bible condemns prostitution. The Bible condemns usury. The Bible condemns um, incest and sodomy. So if the Bible condemns all of these behaviors, which the Jews have always embraced and engaged in, how could the Bible really be a Jewish book? It's beyond me. It's impossible. It's impossible, as you say. It's, it's, it's just political uh, and emotional, and it's laziness, really, Bill. It's laziness and not and also lack of courage, lack of courage, and not wanting to rock the boat, as it were, and not wanting to say something that that they think they're going to get a lot of criticism for from other white nationalists. I think that's a lot of it, lack of courage. Because they won't, they won't investigate it. And you know, if they did investigate it, they would find out what, what we have found out. So they haven't even got the courage to investigate it in the first place. Either that or they're just lying to themselves and, uh, and to others. Well, well absolutely. I hope that um, this program sheds some light on the problem and causes some white nationalists somewhere to actually investigate what we've said because these Jews are not the, um, the people of the Old Testament any more than the, the, the million Jews or so in, inhabiting Brooklyn, New York are, are the people who founded the American colonies or, or any more than the, the Jews of the city in London are the people that, that built the Saxon kingdoms. So it's absurd to see these, um, these patterns which the Jews have fulfilled throughout history and not understand that that's exactly what they did to ancient Judea. They didn't build it. They infiltrated and took it over and now they claim it for themselves, just like they do with every major white nation today. They've infiltrated them, taken them over, and have used them for their own purposes. Thank you, Sam. Back that is now. Thank you, Bill. I think we've um, done a good job with this podcast. As you say, I hope people um, use it, and I hope it gets passed around and... and um, People go off and investigate it for themselves and, and find out that, yes, we are speak, telling the truth there. You know? Praise Yahweh. Good night.